Hi, this is Alan Chartok, and today we have a great interview. Peter Canellos, author of The Great Dissenter, the story of John Marshall Harlan, America's Judicial Hero, and it's published by Simon & Schuster. Peter Canellos has a tremendous biography. He is a very important American journalist. Of course, he was with the Boston Globe for quite a while and now is the managing editor of Politico. Welcome, Peter. Thank you, Alan. So tell us about yourself. Who are you? I would describe myself as an old school journalist, as someone who believes in watchdog journalism, but also believes in storytelling. I've been a journalist all my life. I did go to law school. And it was there that I first read Justice Harlan's dissents, which kind of leaped off the page at me. Now, there was more than one Justice John Marshall Harlan, wasn't there? (laughs) There was. His grandson, John Marshall Harlan II, served on the Supreme Court from the mid-1950s until 1971 and was a a very different figure. You know, he had a distinguished career, but uh, it was not quite the monumental career that his grandfather had because his grandfather served right at the heart of the Gilded Age, right after the Civil War, at a time when all of those post-Civil War amendments that completely changed the Constitution were being interpreted for the first time by the Supreme Court. So on a whole range of issues that affected American lives directly, even more directly than the issues before the Supreme Court today, John Marshall Harlan was an original voice. So obviously, somebody's going to say, What was a major force at the Boston Globe and all of these other wonderful representations that you are and have been involved in? Well, what brought you to this book? Well, what brought me to the book is when you you look at the law, when you study the law, and I had been a law student, you realize, looking at 230 years of Supreme Court history, that there's been enough time that we can figure out who got it right. You know, who knew what they were talking about on the court? Who were the truly influential figures and what separated them from the others? And when you look at someone like Harlan, known as the great dissenter, he staked out a dramatically different set of positions, not just on issues involving race like Plessy v. Ferguson and the civil rights cases of 1883, but cases involving economics like Lochner v. New York, which was all about the government's power to provide things like minimum wages and labor regulations and health and safety regulations. He was in the dissent in his time. He's in the majority today. He was right by himself. Everyone else in the legal system was essentially wrong during those times. So what is it that enabled him to see things differently? And what does courage in the law mean? Those are the themes that drew me to this book. How long did it take you to write this thing? Well, it's sort of like really applying and doing it four years in terms of thinking about it, 30 years. Really? And do you remember the day in law school when you said, holy moly, this is a guy I could really be friends with? <laughs> Absolutely, because when you're sitting there in law school, probably a lot of lawyers here in the audience, you know, you're reading case books, you're reading historic cases, and you're trying to, to sort of discern issues from them. And it's a, it's a fairly dry process. It's almost deliberately a dry process. And then there's this voice that kind of leaps out at the page, you know, somebody who is in tune to in tune with everything that was going on on the ground in his era, but also in tune with, you know, the original intent and meaning of the Constitution. It's why both liberals and conservatives admire Harlan today. You know, liberals look at him and say, this is a man who who cared about people. This is somebody who understood how these dry court decisions can alter American life forever. Conservatives look at it and say, this is a man who has a strong sense of the Constitution, who understood what the framers were getting at, who had a strong sense of national destiny. That's why he's a unique figure. Well, we think he's come into his own now in terms of, you know, how prescient he was about everything. Nevertheless, there's still a lot on his plate, a lot of agenda that we haven't done, isn't there? Well, there's some. I mean, the biggest one, which is intriguing, is that he was a very strong force in the first decade of the 20th century for the idea that the Constitution follows the flag, which means that any U.S. protectorate, any country that is operating under the power of the United States should have full constitutional rights. So in his day, that meant that people in the Philippines, Puerto Rico, Hawaii, all were entitled to the same rights as people in Kansas. 
We're not quite there yet. The court has added more constitutional protections to people there, but this was a big issue during the Guantanamo uh, trials and the Guantanamo era. You know, if you're operating in Cuba under the U.S. Constitution, are you entitled to full constitutional rights? A lot of people will say yes, and a lot of people will point to Harlan on this. It's the one major part of his legacy that has not been adopted by the Supreme Court. Well, Peter Canellos, he's a very interesting political figure. Let's remember that at one point, this guy was a Whig. And he that, was a Whig, uh, but that was one of the ideological underpinnings of his decisions. He was a Whig. But think about what it meant to be a Whig in Kentucky uh, following Henry Clay during that time. Sure. His entire life was spent facing down the threat of a civil war. And it was no surprise that Kentuckians of that era were great statesmen as Clay was regarded trying to find a compromise, trying to find gradual emancipation. You know, they tried colonization. They tried compensation of slave owners. They tried various compromises. And then it all fell apart. Harlan took away from that the sense that the Whigs cared about a national identity and a national destiny as opposed to a state destiny. That was one of their big markers. But their other big marker was kind of moderation. And he came to realize that in that case, moderation didn't work. You needed forthright legal protections. You know, he saw the remade Constitution and Supreme Court after the Civil War as a great protection against the kind of divisions that led to the Civil War. And he felt that if that Constitution were enforced by the Supreme Court, you would be on a smooth path to, you know, health and prosperity for the country. If you don't enforce it and you allow two systems to develop, one for black people, one for white people, one full of rights, one with no rights, one beleaguered, degraded, insulted, it was a recipe for disaster. There are those who would say, Peter Canellos, that this country is racist to its core right now. And it takes real guts to call it out for being that, for the obvious subjugation of our black and Hispanic population. He somehow had the gumption to call it out. Where did he get that from? Was it his parents? Who? Well, it came from, from a lot of sources. One of them was the belief that inequality had led to the Civil War and that inequality would always be a cancer in this society. The other is a personal relationship that he had with a man named Robert Harlan, man of the same name, yeah. grew up in the same house, and was rumored in his time to be the half-brother of John Marshall Harlan. That turned out not to be so, right? Well, it turned out that a DNA test discourages it now. Yes. So it seems unlikely to have been so, according to the DNA test. But there are many ways in which five generations later, you know, things can become more complicated. And certainly they didn't know it at the time. But Robert Harlan was raised like a son by John Marshall Harlan's father. He's really a brother in a way. Kind of like a brother, like a half-brother. And he was older, so it was a little bit of a different situation, 16 years older. Wow. But he was sort of like an uncle when John was growing up. Robert was, you know, sort of a swashbuckling figure coming back from running horse races in Kentucky. He was a great horse racing pioneer. Robert Harlan then went to the gold rush in 1849 and came back the equivalent of a multimillionaire today wow. with $90,000 90, in gold. He became the leading investor in black businesses in Cincinnati, which was the terminus of the Underground Railroad. He even held the mortgage on a key Underground Railroad spot in Kentucky, a place called the Dumas House. He then went on this adventure to Europe where he brought American horses to Europe, you know, to take on the British in the sport of kings, became a kind of famous figure in Europe, came back 10 years later after the Civil War and became the leading black politician in Ohio and a real power broker at a time when the black community really meant something in the Republican Party. And he helped John Marshall Harlan get the Supreme Court nomination. So if you're John Marshall Harlan, and here you know this amazing, wealthy, successful entrepreneurial figure who grew up enslaved in your own home and may have been your half-brother, it's sort of impossible to believe in the sort of white supremacy doctrines of the day, or at least the, the black inferiority doctrines that underlay the Plessy v. Ferguson case. Why did they, his parents name him John Marshall Harlan? Yes, that has big significance too. As you mentioned, Alan, they were a Whig family, and John Marshall Harlan's father, James Harlan, greatly respected the Chief Justice John Marshall, the figure who asserted the supremacy of the law over politics, essentially, in this country. And he was there for a long time, John he Marshall. Was, he was there. John Marshall was there for almost 40 years, and he, you know, he asserted the right of judicial review. He was the one that said the Supreme Indeed. Court is the final arbiter of the law in the United States. It's not Congress. It's not any. It's the Supreme Court. 
So James Harlan believed in that. And, and if you can imagine the situation in Kentucky before the Civil War, knowing that if a Civil War came, your state would be devastated, you believed in the law. You believed there was one law, there's one constitution, there's one nation here. This is not each state on their own. There's one law. And you saw very vividly the importance of that. And all through John Marshall Harlan's childhood, he lived in terror of disunion, of division. And that's part of the ideology that he carried forward onto the Supreme Court. We are talking to Peter Canellos, who wrote this great book, The Great Dissenter, the story of John Marshall Harlan, somebody who Americans don't know much about, let's face it. Peter, why should we study this guy now? We should study this guy now because the Supreme Court is entering an era that may be eerily similar to the one that John Marshall Harlan really? confronted. He served from 1877 until 1911. For most of that time, the Supreme Court was much more conservative than the rest of the country. We've talked about the race cases, but there were a whole string of cases where the Supreme Court reversed 100 years of precedent to declare the income tax unconstitutional, essentially because the wealthiest of Americans were terrified of it. They also declared the Sherman Antitrust Act initially to be unconstitutional because they didn't want to give government the power to go after monopolies. They declared in the Lochner case, as we said, you know, very strict limits on what a state legislature or the U.S. Congress could do to protect workers. Harlan was the dissenter in all of those cases during that time and laid the groundwork for those cases to be overturned in the next era. I think a lot of people look at the current day Supreme Court and think there may be a spate of decisions coming up that will be very counter to the opinions, but also maybe the interests of uh, everyday Americans. Uh, how, how do you solve that problem when the Supreme Court is the court of last resort? The way you solve it is robust dissent, followed by a next generation of jurists looking at it in a different light and reconsidering these problems. Well, Peter, tell us a little bit about Kentucky, because Kentucky figures into our politics. It has a long history. There's a civil war implication that many people don't understand. Why don't you tell us a little about the state of Kentucky? The state of Kentucky is fascinating. The state of Kentucky was originally a part of Virginia, and it branched off independently. But I think it in the early days, viewed Virginia as sort of a role model of the kind of culture that they wanted, except a less aristocratic culture. You know, they wanted to take sort of the good part of the Virginia aristocracy, which is the sense of national leadership, and discourage the other part, which is having, you know, four or five families control the entire state. So Kentucky very much saw itself as representative of America, representative of the American future. In the years before the Civil War, it was a leader in education. It was a national leader in terms of statesmanship, you know, in all of the compromises that preserved the Union before the Civil War. You had Henry Clay, you had the Breckenridge yeah. family, you had the Crittenden family, you had the Harlands, you know, working to affect those compromises. Part of the reason I think that they so dreaded the Civil War was they sensed that once Kentucky was crushed. Once it was exposed that it was sort of half slave, half free, it would unleash all kinds of turmoil for years. And John Marshall Harlan loved Kentucky, but watched the growth of the Ku Klux Klan after the Civil War with horror and disdain. He understood what it was doing, you know, town by town in Kentucky, these places that were sort of positive minded, aspirational, ambitious communities believers in the United States became embittered, impoverished, and divided after the Civil War. You know, Kentucky went from being the Crittendens and the Clays and the Breckenridges to being the Hatfields and the McCoys after the Civil War. Let's remind everybody where they were in the Civil War. They were initially neutral, and then they were part of the Union, but a part of the Union under sort of special terms. John Marshall Harlan himself fought in the Civil War, pulled together a regiment, became a war hero, uh, on the Union side. Uh, but there were other uh, famous Kentuckians who were on the, on the Confederacy. Uh, and, you know, these people were friends. And after the war, some of them remained friends. And when John Marshall Harlan died, you know, some of the tributes in Kentucky were uh, telling stories of kindnesses that he showed to Confederates during his time as, as a Union officer, you know, saving the lives of Confederates who had sort of crossed lines to visit their families and things like that. Um, but that sort of illustrates the kind of pressure somebody was under in Kentucky. You know, before the Civil War, you could be an abolitionist in Massachusetts and everyone would love you. 
you could be a states rights conservative in South Carolina and everyone would love you. Any position you took in Kentucky was going to lead to discord, disagreement, contempt. And it was a very difficult situation for that state to work its way out of. I want to remind everybody we're talking to Peter S. Canellos, who wrote The Great Dissenter, the story of John Marshall Harlan, America's judicial hero. Peter, let's deviate a little bit and go into the present, if you don't mind, go into the present Supreme Court crisis that we have now. The Supreme Court has now six Trumpian-type fellows, people, we should say, and uh, three of the old kind. Uh, there are those people who think that we are in such a dilemma that Trump has won the Supreme Court and that they will be there to mess things up. So based on the extraordinary work you've done, both as a law student and now on, uh, on the, the composition of the court, um, I, I think things are so bad that the talk of expanding the court or changing the court may be the right thing to do, although my colleagues on public radio disagree with me. Uh, where are you? Uh, I'm, I'm with your colleagues on public radio, uh, but I will say um, we confronted this situation once before in the 1930s. We did indeed. And, uh, and it worked. In other words, FDR was really being screwed by that Supreme Court, and he said, well, we're going to expand you. People got really ticked off about the whole thing. Uh, and then, and then uh, it turned around because some of them got off, some of them changed their minds, uh, but he, he won the day. Well, it, yes, and principally it was one and maybe two justices, uh, Hughes all. and, and uh, Owen Roberts, that changed. Uh, Owen Roberts was called the switch in time that saved nine. <laughs> but... Um, uh, I think that everybody agrees and historians agree that it was better to save the nine member Supreme Court, that too much politicization is a danger on the court. Uh, if these Trump appointed justices uh, follow a sort of doctrinaire conservative line in the face of a lot of public opinion, it is it is going to ratchet up pressure on the court and it's going to ratchet up calls for court expansion they would be unwise to do that. They should recognize that the Supreme Court is meant to be a deliberative body, independent of politics, independent of the the source of your, uh, your own appointment. Um, and yet, with all due respect, Peter, um, that's BS if there ever was one. This is a very political court that we have right now. Well, it's political in terms of what Trump intended in, in appointing these justices. But history suggests the opposite. History suggests that people were appointed with one agenda in mind and then shifted entirely. There's a long history of people who are presumed to be conservatives and uh, rock-ribbed uh, Republican appointees who turned out to be some of the most progressive justices. But not, but not the, some of the characters on today's Supreme Court who were appointed by Trump, for example, based on their membership in the Federalist uh, Society. That is that is part of their um, pedigree for sure, but we've seen even in Justice Roberts, we've seen uh, some, Absolutely. some changes. Um, and uh, Justice Gorsuch, it happens, and Roberts are, are big Harlan admirers. Uh, a lot of conservative justices today look at John Marshall Harlan, whose, whose record would be considered a liberal record, and they say, you know, he, he believed in the original intent of the Constitution. He believed in the plain language of the amendments to the Constitution. He had the courage to stand up for people's rights uh, against popular opinion sometimes. They, they love him and respect him and revere him. Roberts has Harlan's portrait in the Judicial Conference Room at the Supreme Court building where all the decisions are made. You have wow. John Marshall Harlan looking down on the court as it makes these decisions. That's the good John Marshall Harlan, not the bad one. No, not... no, there was a, they're both good, but they're good in different ways. But John, <laughs> the original John Marshall Harlan. And um, I, I think that some of that spirit can carry over onto the Supreme Court. I also would remind you, John Marshall Harlan himself, when he was appointed to the court, came from a slave-owning family. He was a moderate before the Civil War. He was not an abolitionist. As Attorney General of Kentucky, he opposed initially the ratification of the post-war amendments. Everybody at the time he was appointed came to believe that he was this sort of token Southerner who was going to be a Southern conservative. He turned out to be the opposite. He, he became the greatest defender of black rights uh, of his era and perhaps in all of history on the court. And uh, 
uh, that just shows that, you know, the assumptions that people make when somebody's appointed um, don't don't usually track through in the Supreme Court. Really and I don't mean to be a bad guy, uh, Peter Canellos, but you want to bet? Uh, not this crew. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is an answerable question. We will we will see this. We will. This playing out just in, you, in the next short, short time. As a man in his 60s, you have a better chance of seeing it than I do. Um <laughs> So 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 anyway, um, but when you have to write a book of this size, and this is a substantial book, um, you know, my wife has just spent five years writing on Elvis and Jewish people, and I know uh, how important, you know, that kind of deep scholarship can be, and what you you want to get it re and you want to get it right. Did you have any difficulties? Was there any point at which? You, you, know, you and a publisher disagreed or uh, or, you know, you 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 ran into a stone wall. Uh, no, this is <laughs> it was a remarkably smooth process. And I uh, this is a good chance for me to to praise my editor at Simon & Schuster, Priscilla Painton, and also some of the young researchers who worked with me principally, somebody, Adam Willis, who's a great reporter in North Dakota right now, and Alec Ward, who's just graduating from law school himself, who helped to study the civil rights cases. No, it was a remarkable process. It was a wonderful process. How did you do it? Did you get up at three o'clock every morning in your pajamas and write? What happened? <laughs> what, what, uh, no, no. I, um, I obviously worked with researchers. I had also studied Harlan for many years myself and had a very clear idea of the trajectory of the story. The greatest challenge in this book, actually, was researching Robert Harlan's life. You know, a large part of the book is about That's clear. Robert Harlan. That's clear in this book that you really were interested in this guy of color who was in that family. Absolutely. I, and, you know, he'll leap off the page. When people read this book, they'll say, wow, the protagonist of this book is not John Marshall Harlan. It's yeah, Robert yeah, yeah. Harlan. I, I think it's the protagonist is the two of them together. But Robert Harlan was a great American figure who sadly became neglected and sort of negated by segregation. His family, which was you know one of the two or three most prominent families in the African-American community in, in the 1870s and 1880s, became completely invisible to the white world under segregation. He himself, he died in the late 1890s, wow. you know, was poised for significant political leadership and segregation held him back and racism held him back. But he was an amazing person and he represented the sort of triumph of human potential and human nature over the most intense obstacles you could ever face as a human being, including being born enslaved. Well, why didn't you write about him? Why didn't you write about John Marshall Harlan? It is clear when one reads this book that your emphasis in many ways was on Robert and not John Marshall Harlan himself. Well, I see the stories as hand in hand. The emphasis on Robert is that Robert Harlan's story represents the human cost of the Supreme Court decisions that John Marshall Harlan dissented against. I also think there's a fascinating relationship between two men who grew up sort of like half brothers, but with this very significant difference that one of them was enslaved. One of them was barred from education. You know, one of them had no hope of becoming a lawyer, for example, which is what the Harlan boys tended to do, but nonetheless triumphed in a spectacular way and rose to a position of national leadership. There's a fascinating dynamic there, an interesting dynamic, and I, I wish we actually had more of their letters back and forth to be able to really understand that relationship, but it's a fascinating situation. But there was a 16-year difference, as you say. There was a 16-year difference in their ages, but when they were adults, they were very much occupying the same space. This is one of the fascinating things. So you had people like Frederick Douglass who had real friendships with both of them. And many of the leading political figures of the day, they all knew John Marshall Harlan. They also all knew Robert Harlan. They knew of the family relationship. It was sort of one of the great unspoken subjects of the late 19th century that many of the black leaders were reputed to be the sons and in some cases daughters of prominent white families. And exploring the precise contours of those relationships is fascinating. And there's no one answer to how they got along. It happened that in the Harlan family, Robert Harlan remained loyal. And if anything, sort of wanted to prove himself to be a, a true member of the Harlan, Harlan family. Why was he there? Why was he there? Yeah. That's a mystery because, you know, the story is that he was born in Virginia. At age eight, his mother took him to Kentucky to find his father. 
ended up in the very small, tiny hamlet of Harlan Station. So obviously she felt the father was a member of the Harlan family or somebody in a very close inner circle around them. And then Robert, at age eight, ended up owned by James Harlan, owned as a slave by James Harlan, who was then only 24. And so people at the time sort of thought, well, James Harlan had relatives in Virginia. Maybe when he was 16, he had some sort of sexual initiation with Robert's mother, and therefore Robert would be his son. And that explains why James took such an intense interest in Robert and educated him himself. Robert's mother, however, ended up remaining enslaved and moving down south where she was enslaved in New Orleans, obviously was sold down south. How did that come about? We know from news reports that James Harlan and Robert's mother communicated by letter, so she obviously was literate. And they obviously had a friendly enough relationship to have a writing correspondence with each other. It's one of those sort of mysteries of history that can never be resolved. Did you see those, any of those letters? No. There were news reports about the existence of those letters because there was a story that when Robert was a very young man, he traveled down to Louisiana to find his mother and to try to buy the freedom for his mother. And the story was that the mother had written letters to James Harlan, and James Harlan shared the letters with Robert. But we don't know precisely what the letters were saying. The book is The Great Dissenter, the story of John Marshall Harlan, America's judicial hero. It's by Peter Canellos, who has a distinguished history of his own employment at some very important places. But Peter, someday somebody will write a book about you. <laughs> I don't know that they'll find all that much information. Oh, they will. I'll tell you, when uh, when John Marshall Harlan's grandson was appointed to the Supreme Court, he was forced to admit that his own life and career spent primarily as a corporate attorney was a very, very, very pale reflection of his grandfather's life. And Was he proud of his grandfather? He was proud of his grandfather, though he saw things a little differently. He was more conservative than his grandfather. But he knew his grandfather. He was about really? 12 when his grandfather died. But he had spent the whole last summer of his grandfather's life sort of living with him. And so they knew each other. Let's go back to John Marshall Harlan and some of his decisions. The one that everybody sort of knows about is Plessy versus Ferguson. First of all, could you praise the case for us and then tell us what John Marshall Harlan had to say in dissent? The case of Plessy v. Ferguson was turned on the Louisiana Separate Car Act, they called it, by which travelers on railroads in the state of Louisiana were obliged to stay in separate cars, black and white, although people of non-black and white race, other Asians and others were allowed in the white car, but black people were not, which is a significant fact in the case. Why is it significant that Asians It's and significant others? because one of the claims in the case was that everybody is being treated equally, you know, sure. whites are just as separate as blacks. But Harlan himself makes the point in his dissent that it wasn't every race being treated equally. It was blacks being separated. There was a deliberate stigma placed on black Americans. The way the case proceeded, though, was that a group of Creoles in the New Orleans community, who are all men and women of mixed race, and many of them the richest families in New Orleans, suddenly found themselves being classified as black for the purposes of this law. And they would even find that some, you know, conductor on the railroad could just sort of declare that they had to move carriages and things like that. They considered that a terrible affront and they funded a challenge to the Supreme Court. By then, the Supreme Court was known to be conservative and known to be hostile to African-Americans. So leading blacks like Frederick Douglass didn't even want them to bring the case. You know, he felt like only bad sure. things could come out of it. And he was right. Nonetheless, they fought for their rights. Homer Plessy, who was only one-eighth black. But you know, still had to sit in a separate car. Was forced to sit in a separate car. The case goes to the Supreme Court. Somewhat predictably, the court rules unanimously, except for John Marshall Harlan, that separate but equal is entirely equal. I mean, it's an abomination. The majority opinion was written by Henry Billings Brown, born in Lee, Massachusetts, I'm sad to say. Oh. It's a wonderful town. We love Lee, Massachusetts, but Henry Billings Brown did not do it proud on that occasion. No, and any, any amount of levity underestimates the terrible corrosive effect of Plessy v. Ferguson. At the time, nobody in the white community paid any attention to it because they expected the Supreme Court to rule against black people. What was noteworthy about it was the force of Harlan's dissent. Harlan's dissent was not just a legalistic quibbling or something like that, but an absolute forthright, screaming from the highest mountaintop, a sense of injustice, inequality, 
wrong done to African-Americans, talked about the wrong done to the, the national legacy. You know, he predicted that enshrining a legal system that treats the races differently will sow the seeds of race hate and lead to discord in future generations. He was 100% right. He said this case will be every bit as pernicious as Dred Scott. At the time, nobody was even reading about it in the newspapers. He said this was going to be as bad as Dred Scott, the worst case in Supreme Court history. And he was right. The two of them are now side as the two worst cases in the Supreme Court history. So Harlan's dissent was a very forceful, strong statement that actually inspired the black leaders who led the civil rights movement of the 20th century. And we can now tell because African-American newspapers are now digitized, the extent to which Harlan's dissent was discussed widely in the black community. When Harlan died in 1911, there were all black services throughout the country. Nobody in the white community even knew that the black community was getting together to mourn John Marshall Harlan. At Washington's Metropolitan AME Church, which is the largest black church in Washington, people came together and they read from his dissents, including the Plessy dissent, they read aloud those dissents. Imagine the impact that had on children in that era and other things. So it kept alive the possibility that Plessy v. Ferguson could be overruled, that we could have something closer to equality in this country. And Thurgood Marshall was a huge admirer of Harlan's. Constance Baker Motley was a huge admirer of Harlan's. She writes very movingly about how Thurgood Marshall used to stand up at meetings and read aloud from Harlan's Plessy dissent in trying to craft arguments that might move the Supreme Court to reverse the segregation doctrine. That happened in 1954 with Brown versus Board of Education. And right there in the heart of the NAACP's brief was quotes from John Marshall Harlan and his Plessy dissent. That's amazing. Constance Baker Motley was, of course, a part of my childhood. Uh-huh. <laughs> And, you know, what this book of yours points out to me is how short American history has been. (laughs) It's very short. That's exactly. It's very short to the point where in the 1950s, when Brown versus Board of Education passed, there were people who knew the first Justice Harlan, you know, who had died in 1911. But, you know, people who were older and who had been young men and women during that time knew him personally. That's right. I remember when some guy died and it wasn't that long ago who said he was the last Civil War veteran. I know. I know. <laughs> John Marshall Harlan himself knew Henry Clay as a sure. child. Can you imagine? Henry Clay knew many of the founding fathers. So it is a very short sprint when you think about that. Yeah, that's amazing. So Plessy goes down as basically a bad decision with a brilliant dissent from John Marshall Harlan. Now let's talk about the other case for which he's really known for, and that had to do with the civil rights laws. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, unlike Plessy, where nobody was paying attention, Uh, The civil rights cases of 1883 were a national requiem. It was an enormous turning point. After the Civil War, the Republican Party was in charge of Congress and the White House and resolved to enforce black rights. There was also tremendous anger, obviously, in the North towards the former Confederacy and a very strong effort to force people living in the Southern states to accept the equality and freedom of formerly enslaved people. That continued basically until 1877, which happened to be a very fateful year in and of itself, in that Harlan was appointed to the Supreme Court, fateful for him, but fateful also because when the troops were withdrawn from the South by President Rutherford B. Hayes, part of an agreement that actually led to Hayes gaining the White House in a disputed election, but a sad moment for the country in terms of the abandonment of the African-American community. Now, Harlan was appointed to the Supreme Court in 1877, and he believed, like most people in the country, that you could not forever maintain a state of occupation in the South. But he did believe that the law could function where troops could not, and that the court should strongly enforce the post-Civil War Amendment. Unfortunately, that wasn't a view that was shared by his colleagues, all of them Northerners and all of them wealthy. So in 1883, a group of cases were bundled together in which African-Americans were rejected from normal businesses and sources of transportation, from railroads, inns, restaurants, etc., in violation of the Federal Civil Rights Act, which had passed in 1875. And one historical note is that Robert Harlan, the presumed half-brother of John Marshall Harlan, had played a significant role in getting that bill passed. So 1883, it's before the Supreme Court, and the entire nation is watching. It is a major national requiem moment. 
Sadly, the entire Supreme Court, except for John Marshall Harlan, declared that the Civil Rights Act was unconstitutional on the grounds that it did not represent state action. And Harlan delivered a long, memorable dissent that marked the beginning of his period as the great dissenter. It was the first time he broke sharply with his colleagues. He was still the court's youngest member at the time. And here he was rejecting all of the How precepts of these other people. How old was he? 49. Wow. And of course, 49 in them days was still a little was bit old, older. But yeah. 49, yeah, 49, he was a grandfather at the time, but he was still the youngest member on the court and sort of felt like he was sort of the junior partner of the law firm. But it was like the junior partner breaking sharply, dramatically in the most important case that had yet to come up during his tenure on the court. And it's memorable today because he made a whole range of arguments for why the Civil Rights Act should have been supported, many of which have been validated in history, one of which claiming that it was valid as an act of interstate commerce, you know, protecting interstate commerce, became the basis for a new Civil Rights Act to be approved in the 1960s. Something the court eventually did with a lot of things, saying if it crosses state lines, it's our jurisdiction. That is true. And it's an interesting question whether they would be willing to do it based on the 14th Amendment as well, which had been the sure. favored way for Harlan to have done it. It was also the favored way of a lot of the liberal justices of the 1960s. But Harlan, interestingly, as early as 1883, Harlan was saying that this could be enacted as a commerce regulation because we're talking about inns, restaurants, railroads. Sure. And in this case called the Heart of Atlanta Motel, in 1965, the Supreme Court did exactly that. What kind of clerks did he have? They didn't have prominent clerks in those days. Uh -huh. uh, they, the clerk system sort of grew up in the 1940s, 1950s. Before that, they essentially had sort of intern figures. But there's an interesting caveat to that. He had a page whose name was James Jackson, who was African-American, who was very close to him, like a personal secretary from the court, who certainly helped to organize his work on the court and may have you know, been a source of wisdom and judgment as well. And James Jackson was at John Marshall Harlan's side when he died in 1911. Well, you know, the whole thing is fascinating because we do think that clerks today, some of them, for some of these judges, have a great deal to do with what's on the paper. They don't get the credit, but, you know, they wrote parts of it or they put parts of it together. That wasn't true, as you say, back in the day. So that means he wrote it all. Yeah, oh, he absolutely wrote it all. And it was a phenomenal amount of work to be on the Supreme Court during that period. It was also a big amount of work because of all things, they did not have judicial pensions in that era. Really? So the older justices sort of hung on the Supreme Court. To make a living. To make a living, basically. But some of them were so ill that they you know, retired to their home states and couldn't function. So you often were faced with times when either the court was down a member or two, or it wasn't officially down a member or two, but there was a much smaller pool of justices available to write the opinions. We are talking with Peter Canellos, who is the author of The Great Dissenter, the story of John Marshall Harlan. And we're talking about John Marshall Harlan and the fact that his dissents led to majority opinions years later. Do you ever wonder whether he's looking down and saying, hmm, you know, that happened? <laughs> <laughs> I, I can tell you for sure that he is, and I'll tell you why, because he later in life gave a series of lectures as a professor at what was then known as Columbian University, which is now George sure. Washington right. University. And there was in his class somebody who was a specialist in shorthand, and some Harlan scholars, Brian Fry and Josh Blackman, had the notes of this student translated into what are essentially hundreds of pages of Harlan in his own voice talking about the law. One of the things that he talked about was the financial sacrifice that people in public service had to make in those days because there were tremendous social obligations to be a member of the Supreme Court or the U.S. Senate or something. You had to essentially be entertaining every week and it was just a terrible financial burden that, you know, set him, John Marshall Harlan, into debt. So essentially, he was worried about money. He was always worried about money. And he was even giving these lectures at Columbia University to earn a little extra money. But he said, asking sort of out loud, you know, why would somebody do this, make these sacrifices? And he said, the reason is that urge in all of us to live after we die, to be remembered for mm. righteous stances. So this is what he was envisioning. Mm. <laughs> so he absolutely is looking down and seeing his vindication and the vindication that he felt throughout the 20th century 
and the very proud legacy that he left behind. No, he's a married man, and he had six children. So the question is, what can you tell us about his home life? His home life was extremely happy, and a lot of people wonder, where did he get the courage and the fortitude to stand against his colleagues in all of these cases and stand against the entire white community in the case of the race cases? And I think one of the many sources of strength was his family. His wife, Malvina Harlan, shared his views, and we know that because she wrote a posthumous autobiographical sketch and made it clear that she shared his views in the law and even consulted with him at times on cases. They had a very companionate marriage for that era. What does that mean, companionate? I think there's an actual term that like, they, you can define marriages, uh, historical marriages, and companionate meant that they were more like a modern-day contemporary marriage, yeah. where they actually were true companions, as opposed to, say, George Washington's marriage to Martha Washington where George made all the decisions and Martha lived with them. John Marshall Harlan and Melvina Harlan shared in the decision-making for their family, and she was participant in all of the activities of his life. Well, six children in them days was a lot of children as it is now, and we didn't have the same protections in childbirth and the rest. That is true, and she had her children over about a 16-year period she also, however, raised a granddaughter from infancy, so they had a full family, and they loved their family. I mean, John Marshall Harlan relished his immediate family and felt a deep loyalty to his extended family. And his sons, who very much shared his political views and his judicial views in some cases, there are a few instances where they disagreed, I think the fact that they provided support for their father in disagreeing sharply with his colleagues made him feel less isolated. You know, one of the great paradoxes of John Marshall Harlan is here's the man who was perhaps the greatest dissenter in history, but he was not an outcast. He was friendly with his colleagues. He shared rides to and from the court with his colleagues. There's a story of him sharing an apple with Justice McKenna on the streetcar heading home. He was active in the bar. He was a leader in his community. He was a leader in his Presbyterian church. He was a lifelong devout Presbyterian and a national leader in the Presbyterian movement. And a loving, devoted family man, father of six, grandfather. This is not the profile of the kind of dissenter who, you know, changes the world because they're willing to make any sacrifice for their views. Well, there's a sort of ethos. I mean, we know that Ruth Bader Ginsburg, for example, liked to play poker <laughs> with some of the people who were, you know, adamantly opposed to her views. That... No, that's exactly right. But I think Ruth Bader Ginsburg's uh, early life experiences, experiencing discrimination in the law, uh, understanding that the situation of women was in a dire position when she was in her youth, um, is, is in some sense a parallel to what Harlan experienced when he saw racism, inequality, civil war destroy his state. You know, when you've fought in the civil war, when you've seen death, when you've walked through the bloody fields, when you, you've seen everything collapse around you, you have more confidence in your views. You know, he wanted to be liked by his colleagues and he wanted to be remembered by posterity, but he understood that there were higher stakes than that. And that's what he lived by. Again, I want to point out we're talking to Peter S. Canellos, author of The Great Dissenter, the story of John Marshall Harlan, America's judicial hero. Peter, was it tough getting the book published? No, it was not, actually. People welcomed it, and there was a substantial amount of interest. It's not the most commercial subject right now. It's not a, a book that is sort of pre-sold by dint of its subject matter. But I think there is a, an audience waiting for it. I think there's an audience for a thoughtful American hero, for somebody who could sort of stand above the conflicts of his time and guide a path forward that really substantively changed American life. It's a very affirming story. It's a powerful tale. It covers some of the great events in American history. This is not some dry judicial biography. It's a robust American tale about how one man in John Marshall Harlan wrote legal opinions that changed the world and how another man, Robert Harlan, transcended all of his circumstances to have a very positive impact on the world. So Peter Canellos, how can people get this wonderful book? It's available for pre-order right now, and it's going to be available in stores on June 8th. 
And the publisher is Simon & Schuster. Simon & Schuster, but it's available through your local independent bookstore online. It's also available through Amazon, through other national, Barnes & Noble, other national sites right now. You can pre-order it, and it'll be in your mailbox on June 8th. Who on this court do you think is closest philosophically to John Marshall Harlan? Well, I'm not going to answer it directly, but I will say it's a fascinating question because someone like Neil Gorsuch is enough of a Harlan admirer that he cited Harlan two or three times in his confirmation hearings and has a portrait of Harlan on his wall. Roberts, we know, has Harlan's portrait in the Judicial Conference Room. But we also know that great liberals throughout history, including on the current court, are true admirers of Harlan as well. We talked about Thurgood Marshall, and we talked about Constance Baker Motley. We talked about, I mean, Frederick Douglass in his time called John Marshall Harlan a moral hero. So what's fascinating about it is that both today's liberal jurists and today's conservative jurists claim a piece of the Harlan legacy. You know, Peter Canellos, there are people who start to write about people and then they like them and they end up liking them or not liking them. Do you feel a personal friendship now with your subject, John Marshall Harlan? Absolutely. You know, one of the things that attracted me to this subject is the sense of posthumous vindication of, you know, people who took risks in their life, believing that they would be vindicated over time. And in his case, who has been vindicated over time. I believe that he's an amazing figure in American history. I think he really is the greatest jurist since John Marshall. And there's an element of almost mystical prophecy there. His father named him John Marshall Harlan because he, he the father, was such an admirer of Chief Justice Marshall, and he dreamed that this son would one day go to the Supreme Court. I mean, his father had that in his mind. James Harlan was the leading lawyer in Kentucky of his era, and he wanted all of his sons to go into the law. Unfortunately. Robert couldn't go because he was African-American, but he envisioned this particular boy, his fifth son, being the spiritual heir to John Marshall. And, and he was, and he became the greatest justice since Marshall. And that's an amazing story. Now, Peter Canellos, he is not the only person who has ever written a dissent in their lives. There have been other great dissenters. And in writing this book, did you think about them? Yes, absolutely. I mean, thought a lot about the history of dissent too. Harlan was really the first who made his entire sort of approach and body of jurisprudence through dissent. You're probably thinking of Oliver Wendell Holmes, who also wrote some very influential dissents. In today's court, you know, we talk about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and, and there are other liberals currently on the court, like Kagan and Sotomayor and Breyer, who've also done some of their most notable opinions in dissent. I think Harlan is a model for all of them. The Holmes comparison is a fascinating one in several ways. You know, Holmes was probably our greatest legal thinker. He's our greatest legal theorist. You know, he was a very famous figure before he was on the Supreme Court. He'd written the most influential book about American common law. He'd been on the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court for decades. He taught at Harvard. Then he gets on the Supreme Court in his 60s and serves another 30 years until he's in his 90s. And, you know was blessed with great health. But they did have to visit upon him, Holmes. They had to visit upon him, as they say, in judicial parlance in order to say, okay, that's enough now, right? Yeah, and... he was the, there's there are famous stories of how they tried to coax him off the court when he was in his 90s, which is exactly true. And I think the story you're probably remembering was that his colleagues came to him and tried to sort of soften the blow by rem reminding him that there had been a time back in Massachusetts where he had to approach an elderly justice to get him to retire. And they said, well, Justice Holmes, you know, you remember going back 30 years when you approached this fellow and all that and Holmes snapped back. He said, I do. And a dirtier bit of business I've never done in my life. <laughs> but that that anecdote actually captures an aspect of Holmes's personality, which is he was quite pugnacious. He was a justice that stood above the law all the time in some sort of ways. You know, he was in love with his theories. And he wrote some amazing opinions, and he has laid down a legacy that is revered in the legal academy. But when it came to the actual rightness or wrongness of his decisions, he was no match for Harlan. Harlan's yeah, legacy see. is a, a far more admirable rendering of cases than Holmes. Now, you must, Peter Canellis, you must be one of the most comprehensive thinkers about the history of the Supreme Court in the United States right now. You've done a great deal of work on this. Keep in mind, there are people who are, you know, the historians. law professors yeah. and spend every minute of their career studying the Supreme Court. So I, I would not make that position myself. But I will say that having studied Harlan to the extent that I have, 
I feel like his story is almost an essential career to understand if you want to understand American law. And I think that future scholars have to pay more attention to Harlan. I think that one of the reasons that Holmes is so well-remembered and remembered perhaps even more prominently than Harlan within the legal academy is because he um, was very theoretical. You know, he when it came to advancing the idea that sort of neutral principles and logical connections can bring about justice, I think he attracted a lot of academic followers. I think a lot of people are flattered by the idea that logic alone can solve these problems. Harlan never believed that. That's not the lesson that comes out of Harlan's career. I think that law professors are a little less fascinated by Harlan than they are by Holmes, and they would do well to shift some of their attention to Harlan. The name of the book is The Great Descent of the Story of John Marshall Harlan, American Judicial Hero, by Peter Canellos, who is a guy who has been really covering the great problems of our society, and we are very thankful that he has agreed to come and talk to us. Peter, my final question is, when this book is reviewed, who's not going to like it? <laughs> uh, you're, you're playing into my, uh, my psychology here because the reviews so far, there've been two advanced reviews that have been extremely positive, but everybody sort of thinks, well, what, what lines of attack might there be? I mean, I, I, you know, we were talking before about the legal academy and the respect that exists for Holmes and the fact that Harlan is somewhat unappreciated. I think dissenters generally are not fully recognized within the legal academy. So would it surprise me if a law professor came in and said, well, you know, Harlan wasn't as great as this book makes him out to be? I suppose that's that's possible. It'll be a very interesting thing to see. And in some ways, in writing this book, you want to invite that discussion. So uh, there's a part of me sure. that kind of welcomes that kind of a critique. But, you know, obviously, no, no author uh, wants anyone to say that the book is anything less than definitive. And that's my, my hope for this book. Well, Peter Canellos, first of all, thank you so much for joining us. Most of all, you know, somebody will write a biography of you because you've done so many extraordinary things in your life and you've been around. So, again, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Alan. You've been listening to Dr. Alan Chartok, President and CEO of WAMC Northeast Public Radio and Professor Emeritus at the University at Albany. For more information on WAMC's In Conversation with Alan series, or to order a physical copy, call 1-800-323-9262, or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or on the Google Play Store.